This is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain Park, and we are thankful to be able to spend a few minutes together with you, the heart of our church, the mandate of our church that we feel God has called us to is to ignite or provoke a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus in our life. And uh, this is gonna be a little bit of a different podcast episode for a few reasons. Number one, our live recording um, glitched. It didn't work. So I am re-recording this a few days later after our live service. Um, And there are pluses and minuses to that, obviously. Uh, So I just wanted you to know that. Um, Secondly, I'm recording it on my phone, which is not ideal, but hopefully... um, with the reduced quality, um, God is still able to work. Actually, I'm pretty sure he can work in that circumstance. Third, I'm not feeling well. I've been under the weather, and uh, which is why my voice has a more very white tone to it. Uh, I can get super low and deep. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I won't talk like that the whole time, but um, I... Uh, I may cough during this or um, you might hear some weird sound or something like that. Just know it is because I am not feeling super well today. So having said all of that, I want to step with you into the heart of what we were communicating in this sixth uh, part Uh, of our Rekindle series. If you've been with us, I've mentioned this. If you haven't, I'll mention it now. Every year, we in our church, our staff and leaders take time to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for a word for our church for the coming year. And usually we start this in the summer and uh, kind of really ramp that up in the early fall. And this year, our sense from him was that uh, we, our greatest need was to be near to his presence, that for everything that is coming in 2023 in the world and in your life, in your family, in your work environment, in your social spheres, all of that, for all that is coming in life, our greatest need is for nearness to the presence of God to rekindle nearness to his presence. And often in scripture, God's presence is described as fire. So to be near to the presence of God is to be near to the fire of his presence. Uh, So we just felt like and, and feel like still today, obviously, that the greatest need we have, this is kind of what we sense the Spirit speaking to us, the greatest need we have for the coming year is nearness to his presence. The greatest need we have is to rekindle the spiritual fire of his presence in our lives by being near to him. And um, just as a reminder for you and for me today with that, uh, all things, 
like I'm, this is a scriptural statement. All things come from his presence. He's the author and creator and perfecter of all things. Everything comes from him. And everything that we need for life today, everything you need to walk through the rest of this day um, or what you're going through in life right now, all of that stuff, everything you need for that comes from his presence. So our greatest need is to be near his presence again, to rekindle the spiritual fire of nearness to his presence. Our greatest assignment is to do the work that it takes to rekindle that fire of his presence. Like Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Timothy, you fan into flame. Fan into flame, Timothy. You fan into flame. Um, the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to you through the laying on of hands. Timothy, it's your job to cultivate and to stir and to activate uh, what is necessary to draw near to God, what is necessary to uh, rekindle the fire of his presence in your life. And so we've been talking about that for a number of weeks. This last installment here, week six, I want to uh, talk about God's presence, the fire of his presence, and how faith fuels that fire. If we were to use sort of a campfire analogy, uh, I would say that the faith are like the logs of the fire. They're the the source of fuel. We need oxygen. We need a spark. We need all of these things, but uh, faith in our life is the fuel for the fire. Last week, Pastor Brenda talked about trust, and she noted how trust and faith are not the same thing. Trust is about relationship. Trust is being known and loved by God. Trust is having security in who God is, in who I am, who I am in Christ. Um, trust is rooted in the love of God. Uh, but she noted that trust and faith are not the same. It's actually deep trust that in orders us to act or respond in faith. So faith is more about what I do. It's how I live in response to the trust that I have in God. And there are a few scriptures that sort of describe the anatomy of faith. I want to just kind of walk through a few of them with you. Hebrews 11.1, 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of the things we cannot see. And I would just point out in the author's writing here, a few words that are important. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's a, it's a manifested expression. It's the evidence of the things we cannot see. Uh, James 2.14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? There's that same word again, show. Can that kind of faith save anyone? And I think James enters into uh, some troubling water for some of us. In um, Martin Luther, who was a prominent figure, obviously, in the Reformation, he really struggled with the book of James. He actually hoped that it 
you know, he wished that it wasn't even a part of the canon of scripture. Um, because James um, is, is providing this framework, this healthy tension between justification by faith um, and uh, the process of sanctification, working out our faith, expressing our faith in how we live. And there's a great tension here, but notice how James is not saying that we are justified by what we do. We're not justified. We're not saved by what we do. We're not redeemed by what we do. But what we do is the evidence that what we actually say we believe is what we believe. And one of the, one of the I think the limitations that we need to recognize with our modern post-enlightenment Western evangelical structures of being, one of them is this hyper-focus on an internal individualistic kind of mode of Christian faith where we can say intellectually that we believe uh, Jesus is the son of God, that we believe in the scriptures. We can say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and say that we believe that and 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 for for many in the Western evangelical church, we say, well, that is faith. I'm a person of faith. Now, I think James would have a problem with that. The writer of Hebrews would have a problem with that. I think actually all of scripture has a problem with this hard distinction between what we intellectually say we agree with Jesus on or what we agree with scripture on and how we actually live. I want to submit to you that one of the primary ways we rekindle the fire of God's presence in our life is we bring what we say we believe, theologically, doctrinally, uh, intellectually, we bring that into the reality of how we live. That is the role of faith. James says further in 2, 17 to 20, so you see faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. <laughs> That's great that you agree with scripture on that. He goes on to say, even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? <coughs> Excuse me. There's one of those coughs. <laughs> so here's, um, here's this tension that we have to live in. That um, our Christian life to be saved by grace through faith um, is not what is meant by that is not that we do nothing. It is not that we exist on a purely intellectual, um, you know, theological basis. What is necessary, James is saying, is to take what you say you believe and begin to live it out. We have this saying we've used many times, and it's not unique to me. I'm not the one who came up with it, 
But grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. There's nothing, nothing in Scripture that I can see that stands in opposition to somebody walking out their faith in tangible ways. Actually, I think that that is the, that is the command of Scripture. That's the essential requirement. That's the expectation of Scripture is that we take what we say we believe and begin to live it out. So going back to, <coughs> sorry, again, going back to this link of trust and faith. Trust happens in our inner world. Faith is how it plays out in our lives. Faith, uh, as someone else has defined it, is acting like what I believe is actually true. So faith is acting like what I say I believe is actually true. It's, it's putting the rubber to the road, so to speak. Now, here's, um, I, I want to just um, walk through this next section in um, a little bit of a different way. So on Sunday in our church, I used the example of how God has called us as a church to steward our, our budgeting and uh, specifically our giveaway offering. And I'm going to make mention of a few of those things, but a lot of that is specific to our church family. It may not apply to you. So I want to just kind of skip through um, this as best I can. But in our own church, in my own leadership, in our own staff, in our own leadership, we feel that God has been challenging us with this idea of actually making decisions living in faith, not just saying that we believe God will provide for us, that we that God is first in our finances and all of this stuff. He's actually asked us to demonstrate that with um, how we structure our finances. You know, um, and I'll go back to six years ago when um, the leadership at Mountain Park was asking about and inviting me to potentially come back. I had spent almost 10 years at Mountain Park pastoring under my father, who was the lead pastor at the time. I was sort of the jack of all trades. I did a little bit of everything. I started as an intern and ended up working full time for around 10 years. And then for a period of about six years, I was working at another church locally uh, in the Niagara area. And after that, Period. So after about 16 years of ministry, I had actually felt like um, I was ready for a bit of a change of scenery, as it were. Um, clearly, by the fact that I'm here talking with you, that was maybe not the idea God had for me. But, you know, when Mountain Park be and their leaders began to chat with me and with a few others about... Uh, reshaping the future of the church with um, a new staff and, and new direction, things like that. The church really was not in a financial position to be able to do anything that they were talking about, but they were operating in faith and in trust. They felt they were hearing from the spirit. And so um, when they 
brought me on and a couple others on in the winter of 2017, they had $250 in the church bank account. Like the, that's all, like for everything. That was, that was all they had, but they felt God's calling and their demonstration of faith was to, to walk through the steps uh, to bring um, some new staff members on and to initiate what they were sensing was a needed transition in the life of the church. And at first, for many years, I actually saw that as a negative. I actually viewed the fact that we only had, you know, a couple hundred dollars in the bank as as a negative, as a, you know, and it was, I think it was last year or maybe a year and a half ago, the Holy Spirit kind of reproved me. He corrected me and I feel like he uh, sort of sat me down and said, that was not a negative. That was a demonstration of faith, Andrew. They were putting their trust in me when um, they had no human capacity to be able to accomplish their plans on their own. And that's, I think, the essence of what we're talking about in terms of faith uh, needing to be activity. Faith must be an external walking out of what we say we believe. So the leadership trusted God and followed that trust, that internal, like, we trust you, Father, with the life of our church and with all of this stuff. They followed that by acting in faith. And so there's, I think, a beginning to faith, and I'm I'm not talking about those of you who are new to following Jesus. I'm talking about those of you who have been following him for 20, 30, 40 years. And I'll include myself in this. We um, we live in a Christian culture in in North America that is is very weak in. Um, these areas of walking in faith. And I'm not talking about necessarily certain streams of the church that emphasize this. I'm just saying in general, we struggle in this area. Largely, we have an intellectual, um, theory-based Christian life. And I think scripture calls us to to more, and if we want to fan into flame the the fire of God's presence, we have to have, begin to walk out what we say we believe. So, faith requires a reorientation of three things that I just jotted down here. Number one, uh, it requires a reorientation of perspective, and this is the substitute of our wisdom for God's wisdom. This is where we yield and surrender our perception of things, our perspective of what's best and what's wise, what we consider to be best practice standards in how we make decisions, faith requires a reorientation of our perspective. We need to humble ourselves and lay down our human wisdom, our human ways of seeing things. Um, secondly, faith requires a reorientation of our priorities. If we're going to walk in faith, we actually have to rearrange our priorities. We have to rearrange how we 
invest our time, how we prioritize our time, how we prioritize our spiritual life, how we organize our life on a daily and monthly and you know, yearly basis. We actually need to shape our priorities around what we say we believe. And third, faith requires a reorientation of our practices. So not only do we need to shift our perspective and yield our wisdom to, um, to God, <laughs> not only do we have to reprioritize, we actually need to change our practices. We need to change how we use our time. We need to reorient how we invest in our lives spiritually. And uh, so as a church, we've done this in a few specific ways. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me again. We've done this in a few specific ways. And one of the ones that I want to just highlight for you, if you're not a part of our church family, we're not a, a large church. I, I can't remember the last time I actually looked at our attendance. It's been well over a year now. So, but I would guess by how many people I see on a regular basis, we'd be somewhere between three and 400 people on a regular basis. So we're not a large church. Our total budget is, you know, I think $850,000. It's not a ginormous budget. So I want you to just keep those things in mind as I'm talking about the specifics of how we um, have felt God calling us to walk out our faith in a different way as a church. So as a church, one of the ways um, relates to the giveaway offering. Now this in the life of our church always happens near the beginning of December. And for a number of years, we would um, take a year end offering as a church. And then the week after that, we would take a giveaway offering. Last year, I just sensed, and we as a team sensed the Holy Spirit calling us to reorient ourselves in that practice and in that priority and in that perspective. And we sensed him saying, I want you to have the giveaway offering first and then take a year-end offering for the church. And the year-end offering that we take is just for the growth and expansion of God's ministry. That's an offering where we give above and beyond what we normally give so that we can go beyond the places we normally can go um, in ministry. And honestly, when, uh, when God started sort of nudging us in this direction, my, my first internal response was, that's, that's foolishness. If we do that, then we're going to get less in offering the following week. So we need to take care of our house, our needs first, and then we'll take care of others. This is kind of what's going on in my head as I am sort of just trying to, to, to feel my way through what the conviction that the Spirit is bringing uh, to me and to our staff and leaders. And, but we just sensed God saying, no, I am calling you. This is, this is a requirement of faith now. I'm inviting you to put into practice what you say you believe about me. And so we have shifted, functionally shifted, 
things around so that we have our giveaway offering where we give all of it away, every cent that comes in, we give away to uh, uh, families in our church and people locally that we discern through a number of months of uh, of just prayer and discernment. We give the whole thing away. And now after that, we have our year end offering. And so these are actions that reveal where our trust is found. So these are the actions that are the evidence that we trust God as a church for the life of our church, for what's coming in the next year. These are also the actions that reveal who is leading our church. Our desire is to be led by Jesus, not by me, not by our, uh, you know, uh, our staff or our board of overseers, our, our team of overseers. We want to be willing to be led by Jesus. And we can't say that we are led by Jesus if we don't actually respond to his voice, to his directives to us in faithfulness. So we could say all day long, oh yeah, we're led by Jesus and we trust in him. But then, you know, when he invites us to step out in faith and trust, if we always defer back to our own wisdom or our own logic, our own way of viewing what's best and wise, then can we really say he's leading? Can we really say we trust him? And we, these are areas we feel God calling us to grow. And so this giveaway offering that happened for us uh, the second week of December this year in 2022, I'll just give you a few numbers. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not providing these because there's any, uh, uh, like we have pride in the amount of money. It's not really about the amounts at all. Um, I'm just simply using this as an example, a demonstration so that you can see how this has worked itself out just even in the life of our church and apply some of these principles in your own life. So our giveaway offering this year was 25598 So for context, that's the largest single offering of our year so far. So on average, our church, I think our our on average weekly offering would be in the thirteen to fourteen thousand dollar range. So that's just just for context. So this is the largest offering that we've had this year, and we're giving the whole thing away. And it is the largest one that we've had in the last six years of taking these, except for we had an exception last year under some pretty special circumstances with a family in the life of our church. So I just want to run through a few of these things. Uh, numbers in 2017, that offering was 21,661. That was divided up uh, we, um, to a number of families within our church that um, needed some financial help and we were able to bless them before Christmas. The same that we're going to do actually this week as I'm speaking uh, this year in the life of our church in 2018. The offering was 16645 And we discerned through, again, a number of months of process beforehand, we discerned that God was inviting us to give that whole amount to a local pastor in our city, in Niagara Falls, in Canada here. And so we were able to 
write the check that week and bless another pastor who's been serving faithfully for many years in our city. 2019, that offering was 19,453. And uh, with that, we had discerned and were able to uh, financially support and bless a family um, that is connected through some different relationships to our church that is working up north in the indigenous communities on the reserves there. And we were able to support them and bless them. In 2020, the offering was $21,058. And that offering, again, we were able to support and to bless a family that was a part of our church who um, who actually moved to the island of Guadalupe to plant and start a church. They literally picked their whole family up and moved to the Caribbean island of Guadalupe to start a church and we were able to bless them. <coughs> and uh, in 2021, that offering was 64,310 and that was us. Uh, a specific offering that we were able to bless a family in our church with who, um, yeah, God is fortunate, uh, allowed us to be a part of their family story. So over the last six years, the total amount that we've been able to give away is $168,728. And I just, I want to remind you again, six years ago, when the leaders of our church stepped out in faith. They expressed their trust in God by moving forward in activity to initiate a transition into a new season in the life of our church. There was $250 in the bank account total. And from these six single Sunday offerings over the last six years, we've been able to bless uh, people in our church and in our local community with 168,000. So that's faith. That is taking what we say we believe about God and expressing it in activity and action. So it's faith for us as a church to not just say we value extravagant generosity and we want to see extravagant generosity from those who come to our church, but it's faith to express that generosity as a church, to trust God before we receive an offering for ourselves, we're willing to give away uh, through that giveaway offering. And that for us is a demonstration of what it means to learn to walk in faith and to trust God. We apply this principle of faith to our own annual uh, budget. We tithe as a church 15% of all of our annual giving. So that tithe for us is um, what we believe God has called us to do as a biblical model. It's not just that the people in our church tithe, we as a church tithe 15%. And that goes to a few different areas. Um, That goes to global mission causes, that are outside of our church, that goes to a few local agencies and organizations that are outside of our church, but connected um, through relationship, that goes to some Jewish ministries that um, we deeply care about. And so this year in 2022, as of the first 10 months of the year, 
that amount uh, has been $91,758 that we have given as a tithe outside of our church. That 15% is also made up of what we would call our benevolence or emergency help fund. And this is for people specifically within our own church family. So this year, as of October again, um, between gas cards, grocery cards, Walmart, sort of dollar store, et cetera, we have been able to help the people of our own church um, through those gift cards to the amount of $13,950. And in addition to that, we have a budget line that we've just called emergency help. And we, we help people regularly in the life of our church, families, individuals, singles, uh, people that are struggling on uh, disability, income, um, a whole bunch of reasons. We are able to help them with rent, car repairs, additional medical expenses that are not covered under uh, our provincial medical coverage. So this year, uh, up to October, that number has been $18,925 of emergency help, real-time, real help that we've been able to give to people. So the total between those two things, the gas and groceries and Walmart and emergency help is 38875 So the total this year of our tithe, the amount that we feel God has called us as a first fruit to give away, the 15% is 124634 This is how we feel God has called us to walk out our faith as a church to express our trust in God through activity and actions that demonstrate that we believe God is who he says he is. And so it's these um, shared experiences of uh, faith that come through our giveaway offerings and our tithing as a church. It's these shared experiences. It's the fact that we all get to experience these together that stirs a, a deeper passion and hunger for the presence of God that ignites a, a fire that fuels a spiritual fire, the, the fire of God's presence in our life. It's as we share these experiences together that our own spiritual life is rekindled. So I guess the question I would have for you in, in terms of this first stage of just building a life of faith, or sorry, beginning a life of faith, we'll get to building in one sec, a few questions for you. What perspectives do you hold that are rooted in your wisdom, your understanding, your capacities, and not in God? What perspectives are you holding right now that maybe Jesus would ask you to yield to him? and not purely act on what you believe to be best practice or best wisdom based on your understanding of what's best. What perspectives you hold that are rooted in you and not in God? Second question, what priorities in your life do you need to rearrange? And third question, what practices do you need to change, start or stop? What are the actual practices of your life that you need to uh, either change or start or stop in order to have a life 
um, that is consistent with what you say you believe with what, you know, and the, these are the same questions I would ask myself. So these are foundational elements to beginning faith. From beginning faith, we need to move to building faith. And this is something that God has been challenging me with in this season. And specifically, as we've been um, walking toward our giveaway offering this year and our year-end offering, I've really been struggling. I've really struggled with how to preach, what kinds of sermons is God calling us to serve our body with? What kind of content is the Holy Spirit inviting us to step into? What would be most helpful for the life of our church? If if I were to just go by the playbook that I've learned in pastoring for the last 18-ish years, then I uh, that playbook says that we need to... Um, you know, we need to work toward sort of a year-end offering with sermons on giving and tithing and uh, generosity, sermons, um, you know, that, that share great stories of triumph and victory in Scripture. There are obviously lots of those, but the, the script or the playbook for how to work your way toward a year-end offering um, looks very different than what we feel God has called us to. And I've really struggled with that. We've been talking about things like suffering, (laughs) things like, um, you know, uh, desperation in prayer and longing prayer and things uh, that have nothing to do with your bank account or have nothing to do with trying to work toward a big year-end offering and I, all, all along in the last number of weeks, I've actually asked uh, a bunch of people around me, like, am I crazy? Am I hearing, am I totally off in what I think I'm hearing from God? Am I just, am, am I sort of driving down the wrong side of the road here? I've been actually quite, um, quite insecure at times about this rekindle series and all of that stuff. And so God has asked us not to teach on giving, um, not to try and stir people up emotionally with, you know, uh, this grand vision for the future and the life of the, uh, of the church, not to try and stir people up with like, you know, um, creative media, or video stories. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but what I feel Jesus inviting us to this year and challenging me with is, do you trust me enough to just invite people to be obedient to my voice in their life? Leave the campaigning, as it were, (laughs) leave that on the side of the road (coughs) and just trust me. And so... Um, that's what I've endeavored to do. I'm not sure that I would say I've done that well or perfectly. Um, but I've just, I, I've sensed him saying, I want to build your faith. And in order to build your faith, you have to let go of these mechanisms that you've been taught and trained in, in church leadership and in ministry and in church life, these mechanisms that we say we need 
in order to build bigger churches, expand property, grow platforms of influence and all of that stuff. I just sense that Jesus is saying, you need to walk away from those mechanisms you've been taught and teach people to draw near to my presence. My presence is the most important thing in their lives and in yours. And in a way, I've sense God saying, Andrew, I know what you and the body at Mountain Park need. And I'm calling you to deeper levels of trust in me that will require greater responses of faith. I just sense him asking me the question, do you trust me enough to surrender the methods you've been taught about leadership, casting vision and building momentum? Do you trust my heart for you and Mountain Park? And as I said, I've, I, I want to say yes, but I've really wrestled with that. Uh, but this message today is my best attempt um, not to try and uh, campaign to have our church give more money uh, for this year-end offering. This is my best attempt to trust Jesus and to express that through faith by not going to the usual playbook. Um, this is me deepening and building my own faith in Jesus as a leader. This is the outward expression of what I say when I say I trust you, Jesus. So remember, faith is what you do with what you say you believe. And faith for me is not just in what our family was called to give today for this year-end offering, um, but faith is what I'm not going to try and do. Sometimes, and I want to just kind of point this out, I don't want to sit on this for too long. Sometimes faith is about what we must do. Other times faith is about what God is asking us not to do. A way not to engage that just comes out of the flesh. Sometimes faith is not moving forward with something. It's not barreling ahead. Sometimes faith is being patient. Sometimes faith requires us to be at rest. Sometimes faith requires us to keep our mouth shut. <laughs> All of these things. So faith is not, uh, and that is an activity and an action. That's, a, that's an external demonstration. So faith is not always about what I am going to do. Sometimes it's about what I am not to do. Um, and I, this week in our, in our, I guess this is last week now, I was having a conversation just as I was walking out of our office with Pastor Brenda. And I said, uh, quite tongue in cheek, but half serious. I said, you can ask Jesus what he has in mind for me to preach on because I don't really know. And that's part of the struggle I've had. I went outside and as is my practice, I hopped in my car and I turned on an audiobook. I love listening to audiobooks. And I, I, I started or continued in an audiobook that I'm listening to uh, on spiritual authority. It's called I Give You Authority by Charles Kraft. I highly recommend it. Um, but it has nothing to do with tithing or giving or, you know, pastoral leadership in the church in this specific way. It has nothing to do with that. Within about three minutes of driving and listening to this, I um, Charles Kraft talked about Philippians 3, verse 13, in a way that totally jolted me. I want to read you a little bit of a larger 
portion just so you get some more context. Philippians 3, 10 to 14 says this. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection of the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Paul is actually there talking about some qualifiers or validators for his former life, Um, validators for his Jewish ethnicity, validators for his spiritual devotion, validators for his religious zeal and fervor. And he's saying, um, I don't want to say that I've already reached perfection, that those things have already brought me to this complete and perfected place, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Verse 13, this is the verse that Charles Kraft was talking about. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So here's the statement that Charles Kraft made that um, really stopped me in my tracks. I actually went back and rewound it and re-listened to it a few times. Here's what he said about Philippians 2.13. In context, that verse has nothing to do with past hurts. I would say in parentheses, past failure, past sin, past uh, you know trauma, remorse, regret, all of that stuff. That verse has nothing to do with those things. Paul is advising us to put behind us past victories so that we can win the race we are now running. I want to say that again, because this is what just caught me off guard. Charles Kraft says, Paul is advising us to put behind us past victories, not hurt or regret or shame or all of those things, so that we can win the race we are now running. And literally in my head, in the truck, I as I'm listening and driving, I, I, in my head, I said, wait, what? What did you just say? <laughs> I've always thought that Paul is only talking about past failure, pain, regret, uh, sin, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I, um, as soon as I was able to, as soon as I got home, I went in and started really looking into this text, this verse. And there are a few things I would want to say. Um, there are there are split um, responses from commentators on what Paul is exactly talking about. And I think that those responses from commentators can fall under two more macro categories. The first category would believe that whenever Paul is referencing uh, Judaism or his former way of life, He's referencing it in a in a derogatory kind of way, in a in a way that he is uh, saying, you know, everything he did in his former life was garbage and was useless, and um, all of that stuff. There's a second camp that would say, no, that's not actually an accurate way to express how Paul viewed Judaism or viewed his life before. And this would be, I think, where I, I'm not t- 
totally sure, but I think where Charles Kraft would land. Um, Paul is not referencing his former way of life and saying all of that was garbage. On the contrary, Paul is looking at that and saying, my highest moments of devotion, my highest moments of spiritual and religious zeal, my best efforts in these things, the the greatest mountaintop experiences of my life, I now consider nothing because of what Christ has still yet set before me. And for Paul, that was the goal of knowing Christ. Here's what another scholar says of this passage. He does not say, this. so this is Paul. Paul does not say of his former life that it was in the loss column of the ledger. Okay, so again, this is sort of in the spheres of uh, sort of, theology and doctrine that I grew up in, I would have assumed because Paul was referencing his uh, former life in Judaism before meeting Jesus and surrendering his life to him, that he's, he's assessing these things in the loss column of the ledger. But this, this other scholar says, no, this was not uh, found in the loss column, but rather this is his new way of reckoning he counted gain as loss. He goes on to say, Paul does not say Judaism is worthless, that it's refuse. That intrinsically, that way of life is of no value. What he is describing is his consuming desire to know Jesus Christ, to be in Christ. And for the surpassing worth of that, he counts gain as loss. Paul does not toss away junk to gain Christ any more than Christ laid aside refuse to take on the form of a servant. He tosses away that is which of tremendous value to him. Are you catching this? This is a major distinction, a major shift in how to understand what Paul is saying in this verse. There is absolutely nothing here. I'm quoting now again. There's absolutely nothing here remotely akin to the popular type of testimony that catalogs all the sins that were tossed in the garbage can at conversion. What Paul is saying is that Christ surpasses everything of worth to him. We need to keep in mind Paul's model in Philippians 2, 6 to 11. The Christ who did not relinquish the low and base for something better, but who gave up all claim to equality with God in exchange for obedient service. So what what he's saying is that when Jesus humbled himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, when Jesus humbled himself and surrendered, uh, you know, his... his uh, former position, I guess. That's that's not maybe the best way to say it. When he humbled himself before God and came as a man into humanity on the earth, Christ was not giving up garbage in heavenly places. He was not giving up something that was lesser. He was giving up something that was greater. And what Paul is saying in Philippians 3.13, I, I think, is not that he's just giving up junk in order to know Christ more, but he's giving up the very greatest blessings in his life. He's giving up those sort of 
um, moments of triumph and victory, the greatest moments of devotion in his life, those greatest encounters of the presence of God and the reality of God's kingdom that he had previously experienced, the greatest expressions of his faith and all of those things. That is what Paul is laying aside for what? For, for the sake of obedience and faithfulness today. Paul is talking about a radically different way to view the past And that is by living in radical trust, obedience, and faith in the present. So this is what I just, the light bulb that went on for me, what I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying is, Andrew, that is what I'm calling you to in building and deepening your faith and what I'm inviting you to call uh, the church to is a life of faith that's built on responding to me today in the present in faith, not responding to me based on what has happened in the past, not living with the past as the defining um, the defining metric for how you express faith today, either to hinder it, um, you know, through past hurt and pain and whatever, to that, that, that sometimes can limit faith. When we live in the reality of our past brokenness, our past trauma, our past hurts, failures, sin, all of that stuff, that can severely limit the amount to which we are willing to walk in and step in faith today in the present. Conversely, Sometimes uh, we have these, these moments where God has profoundly worked in our lives and touched our lives. We've had these profound encounters. Maybe you've had moments of profound generosity and moments where you've experienced the presence and power of God in tangible ways. But, but you spend your life now evaluating the present in light of those things that happened in the past. As good as they were, Paul is saying, leave them. Forget them. Paul is defining now a radically different way to view the past. I would argue to view the past hurts, pains, and traumas and the past victories and mountaintop experiences. What Paul is not saying, I think, here is just forget about it like like pretend like it never existed. No, I think what Paul is saying is because of Jesus, because of Jesus's ability to heal, redeem, and restore everything in your past, there's no limitation for how he can work in your present and in your future. The question is, are you willing to stand in the present in faith with him to face those things that have been Um, crippling you and wounding you from your past, the things that you are carrying forward into your present? So Jesus is not uh, asking us to just, um, just, just try and forget about the areas of hurt and wounding and trauma and pain and regret and sin and all of that stuff. He's not asking us to just kind of plug our ears with our fingers and la, 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 la. That's not what Paul is saying, I believe, in my opinion. I, I believe what Paul is saying is there's a new way to process those things in the present, in a posture of deep faith, 
by not allowing them to carry more authority and weight into the present than they should. So because of Jesus's ability to heal, redeem, and restore, there is nothing in our past that's a limitation for him. Also because of the future that Jesus has in store, none of the previous victories or the glory days of our past are worth holding onto or attempting to relive. Paul is calling us to be fully present in the moment by pressing on. That word in the Greek um, for press on can also mean strain forward. That word refers to the relentless pursuit by a predator of its prey, or it can be used of an army in hot pursuit of an adversary. It conveys the notion of deliberate, strenuous, maximum effort, straining forward like a runner who is expending every ounce of energy to reach the finish line. So the picture Paul is giving us in this larger context, he loves these running metaphors. Um, I don't know why. I'm certainly not a runner myself. Um, But Paul uses this running metaphor again. And this picture that he has of what it means to forget the past uh, in verse 13, to uh, forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead is a runner whose eyes are set. (coughs) Sorry, I'm really sorry. A runner whose eyes are set on the goal in such a way that he pays no attention to what's behind him. He's not a runner looking over his shoulder, you know, 50 meters before the end line to see what's going on behind him. He's a runner that's focused on that finish line. And what I've just so strongly sensed from Jesus is a call for you and for me to now begin building our faith by living in the present with what is possible, what what is possible through Jesus today in the present, whether that's dealing with the stuff of our past and bringing the healing reality, the healing presence of Jesus to bear on them so that they don't hinder our present and future, or whether that's dealing with the glory days of the past. Either one of those, Paul is saying, I'm calling you to a radically different life of devotion and faith today. Here's the question, I think, from Jesus. What are you willing to do in obedience to my voice today? Are you willing to respond in radical obedience and faith today to my voice and not allow what's happened in the past, good or bad, to be a limiting factor on your ability to walk in faithful obedience to me today. So these things which are behind us, according to Paul in uh, Philippians 3.13, are past victories, a blessing, strength, um, our heritage, the things which are seen as good and evidence of God's favor. Now, even if you fall into the category of people who believe what Paul is talking about in reference to Judaism is inherently 
um, negative and is inherently sort of in that uh, loss and liability column, this still applies. What Paul is calling us to is to knowing Jesus today and to knowing Jesus through the expression, through walking in radical obedience and faith to his voice and to his word today. That's, I think, what Paul is talking about. And as I sat in the truck just pondering this, I just felt like that was the call of the Holy Spirit for your life and for my life to call us to a life of radical dependence on the Spirit, obedience to the voice of Jesus today. What does it mean to walk in step with his voice in our life today and not be limited or bound or uh, hampered by the stuff that's happened in the past? I want to read to you Isaiah 43. I think it has contextual relevance, obviously. Isaiah's writing this um, and recording these words from God to him, and they're specific to the Israelites as they are in this um, uh, period of exile. So we want to be careful of that. But I, I think that there are application points for us here even today with this. Isaiah 43, 14 to 19, again, the New Living Translation. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sakes, I will send an army against Babylon, forcing the Babylonians to flee in those ships they are so proud of. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator and king. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all of its chariots and horses. I drew them beneath the waves and they drowned. Their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. He's, he's reminding them of his power at work, his victorious power at work in delivering them uh, from Egypt in the story of the Exodus. But then this is what God says, forget all that. It's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. Don't evaluate your life based on what's happened in the past, for I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers through the dry land. So Paul's word about forgetting, God's word about forgetting here is not about pretending it didn't happen. There's this, there's this, um, this tension here in scripture that we need to acknowledge because many, many times in scripture, we're commanded to remember the past. <laughs> we're commanded to remember it. Um, um, often in the Old Testament, God would ask the Israelites, as, especially as they were um, wandering through the wilderness, to build memorials, physically memorials, in the places of his great activity in their uh, lives so that they would remember. These are things that God instructed Moses to instruct the Israelites to teach their kids and their grandkids about the things that he's done. Um, so uh, I, there's a tension here in scripture where we, in one sense, we are called to remember exactly what God has done, to recall in our memory the things he's done. And now in a seemingly contradictory sense, Paul and even God is saying, forget the past. So 
I want to be clear here that forgetting is not about pretending it didn't happen or wiping it for from our memory. Forgetting in these contexts and in Philippians is... <coughs> sorry, I'm really sorry again. It is a present tense verb. It's a present tense participle. And so forgetting is not regarding that thing as having any bearing or influence upon the present. That's what God is saying in, I think, in Isaiah 43 and what Paul is saying in Philippians 3. It's not erasing your past from your memory. It's actually dealing with it through Jesus in the present so that it has no bearing or influence in your present on your ability to be faithful, to step in faith, to walk in faith with Jesus. So it's not a call to forget the former victories or the struggles or pains of life. It's a call to live for God today, to immerse ourselves in obedience and faithfulness to God today because of what he wants to do tomorrow. But all too often, You and I are guilty of obedience today that is rooted in our assessment, our interpretation of what happened yesterday. Paul is calling us out of that. Don't allow your assessment or your interpretation of the things that have taken place in your life to shape your ability to walk in faithful obedience today. Jesus can bring healing and restoration to all of the unjust, painful, sinful, um, distressing circumstances that you've ever walked through. Jesus can heal those today. And I believe he wants to. Conversely, your glory days are not worth reliving. Mine aren't. He's got greater things that he's calling us to. So this is how we build faith. We keep pressing on to live out trust and obedience to Jesus rooted in his voice and his calling to us today, not in the experiences of yesterday. Again, it does not mean that we ignore the past, the hurt, the pain, the sin. It means that we face it today with Jesus who can heal it, restore it, and redeem it. I want to say this, just I'm ready to kind of land the plane here. What we don't face with Jesus today will be a liability in our ability to step in faith. I, I, from my own life and experience, I believe this to be true, that what I am not willing to face today with Jesus becomes a liability, but also a point of vulnerability and leverage for the enemy to keep me tied up, bound up, walking with the limp, hobbling along in my Christian life. Paul is calling us to imitate his passion, his zeal, and his devotion to God in the present tense. Radical obedience and faith are a way that we can know Jesus experientially. Knowing him more through these steps of faith, these are the things that fuel the fire of his presence in our life. It's actually stepping out and living 
the things you believe God is calling you to. It's living those areas of obedience that ignite and fuel the fire of his presence. And that's what I'm inviting you into with me in this coming year. Of course, if you're part of the life of the church, our local church here in Niagara, um, this was connected. We ended this service with uh, two things. We ended our service with an exercise where we we print these cards um, that have space for everyone to write down the word for their own life they feel God calling them to. And we gave families space to pray in the service about that. Uh, um, and to ask the Holy Spirit, what is a word for my life in the coming year? They were able to come to the front and write that on. And then um, as a part of that sort of exercise to bring a year-end offering uh, for the life of the church, the growth and expansion of the church and offering that's above and beyond what they normally give. And that's specific to our church body. If you're listening to this and you feel called by God, you feel stirred by him to... Um, to be a part of that, by all means, um, you can give, you can go on our website, mp.church and find a giving button there. You can e-transfer us um, offering at mp.church if you so want to. But as I said to our church, I'm not calling you to that. I wasn't calling our church this year to an offering rooted in need but rather to an offering rooted in faith and obedience and trust, to an offering rooted uh, in being a living, active response to the faith and hope that we say we have in Jesus. I hope that that encourages you. Um, I believe that God has a calling on your life today and for this coming year, 2023, that's coming. I believe he has assignments for you today and in the coming year. I believe he's got a word for your life uh, in the coming year. And I want to invite you to just ask him about that. And I believe that he has invitations uh, to build greater measures of faith in your life coming in the coming year. And I want to invite you to step into those places with me, with us in the life of our church. So thankful that um, if you made it this far, <laughs> you're one of the few maybe, but we love you. Um, I pray God's blessing on you as you end out uh, this year and get ready to step into another year in 2023. See you soon.